politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, our liberty, and our property against the Fourth Reich. Is this the turning point? Have people finally woken up that indeed we are confronting nothing less significant than the Fourth Reich itself? This is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, back here today. See our podcast Friday, September 2nd. By the way, that's the anniversary of the Japanese surrendering in World War II, which signaled the end of the Third Reich and its allies. We we don't have that luxury of longing for a day when we're going to have a ceremonious surrender of our enemies at a ship, on a ship, aboard a ship. Instead, this is going to be a long slog. But it's only going to happen in any form if we actually realize what's happening. So today, obviously the news of the day, all of my conservative colleagues are broadly going to be on message, but still off message. Oh my gosh, look at this. This is a turning point. Uh, this is like the Third Reich. He looked like Hitler, the black and red background, which, by the way, perfectly fits in with the color scheme of our book, Steve Dace and myself, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, still available at trialsandexecution.com for pre-order. And they're right. But it's, again, a little bit bizarre that it took them two and a half years to realize it, just like with the raid on Trump's uh, home, but then still they kind of don't realize it, don't do anything with it. To this day, no one followed my advice with the FBI and states pushing back. And therefore the solution is bizarre. If you listen to even some of the better shows today, what's going to be their punchline? So what? What are you going to do about it? What's your discernible policy outcome? Well, uh, we're going to defeat Biden in the election. Biden, Biden, Trump, Trump, Biden, Trump. And they can't think beyond the top lines of a, a midterm election, an election, presidential, Trump, Biden. It's not about Biden. Biden couldn't even find his way off that podium. He would have said whatever was put on that uh, teleprompter. It's what's behind him. See, if the problem is Biden, yeah, you could vote him out. That's not the problem. The problem is the duopoly of both parties, but it's deeper than that. It's this deep state of... Not just in the U.S., but globally, but particularly the military intel apparatus, as we've been talking about the last two days. What are you going to do about that? Even if you won with righteous elected officials, Congress, and even the president himself, which obviously we don't have the luxury of that until 2025 and we'll be dead by then. But what are you going to do about that? Meaning right now we should have interposition set up in at least 20 states barring all federal actions of the FBI, ATF, IRS, healthcare fascism in all of its forms, education fascism, as if they're autonomous states. They should be growing state national guards to interpose against against um, the FBI and really what I believe is going to eventually be DOD and, and the CIA. And then... I don't have hope in the feds, in, in the federal Republicans, but at least what you would do is you would fight the continuing resolution budget bill in it coming up literally in three, four weeks, as well as the NDAA, the defense bill. 
But Republicans are going to say, oh, we have to support our military. Our military has been taken over. Our national defense is not only not a force for good, and I hate to say it, but we, we have to recognize that they're the biggest threat to our liberty. Because if the military ever falls in the hands of the communists, which it did, well, that's a bigger threat than EPA or HHS falling in their hands. That's the problem. Because the Fourth Reich didn't begin with Biden's speech last night. It began on March 16, 2020, ironically, with Trump as president. You know, it's interesting. I was texting with uh, Thomas Massey today. And he, he reminded me of a couple of things. As you well know, he was the only one who was going to call, calling for and, and, and demanded they come back to Washington to vote on the worst piece of legislation in American history. It wasn't just the $3 trillion and then the several trillion more that that set the precedent for. And the inflation and the supply chain shortages that we suffer today. But it underwrote and greenlit the lockdown, the funding of the Pfizer genocide, the funding of the PrEP Act, and everything that that laid out. The problem is not the optics and the rhetoric of Joe Biden. It's the policies that they've implemented on our bodies, the millions of people they killed since March 2020. It's just bizarre, again, with some of these conservatives that they don't recognize the last two and a half years. They only recognize if it happens to Trump or if it's Biden. Very superficial. You know, we, I, I readily admit, I include myself in this. I, ne- I don't have a normal job for a living. I do politics for a life. But at least be an expert on it. Be a little bit more artful, crafty, sentient sagacious, penetrating about your your analysis. They can't think beyond like the top lines of who's president and oh, it's Biden versus Trump. And then I figure, okay, well, at least that will get them to focus on the Fourth Reich and what to do about it, but it doesn't. Even when it came to Trump, they, it's not like anyone's focusing on the right solutions. It's all rhetoric and talking point deep. Oh, we have a talking point against Biden for today. So finally, they'll invoke some of the Fourth Reich rhetoric that we've been using. But it's not the rhetoric. It's what are you going to do about it? If it's really as bad as your talking point suggests, which it is, then you should be demanding every single governor in response to Biden say the feds aren't welcome in their state. They're going to take back the federal lands. Start drilling preventing the IRS, the FBI from operating, preventing the CIA, which they are, operating on domestically within the states. Threaten to arrest them if they come in. Start funding state guards. And again, at least at a federal level, you would demand that they vote against the NDAA until you get commitments, not just to ending the mandates, but ending the national security um, biomedical state, the surveillance state, all of the ways they're criminalizing us. Oh, man, Biden stepped over the line. What, arresting people and putting them into solitary confinement and torturing them for political opposition didn't matter? He's really criminalizing half the country that disagrees with him. Dude, they did that indeed, not just word, the last two and a half years with COVID fascism and January 6th. Where have you been? 
And because you fail to recognize that, that tells me you're not going to focus on the right solution. How do you fix a federal government where, where everything up to and including the military and intelligence works autonomously and is irrevocably against you? You can't fix it. You can't win the government. You have to interpose against it and create enclaves using power locally and in the states where supposedly a supermajority of voters agree with us to implement our vision. Anything short of that is a waste of time, but you watch all of them and it's like, oh, Biden, you're, you're going to see what democracy looks like. We're going to vote you out. Oh, what? What, so you're going to vote for Mehmet Oz in, in, in Pennsylvania? That, that's really going to scare him. And Lisa Murkowski, when she inevitably wins the primary because of um, the rigged, ranked choice voting that they put there in Alaska, brought to you by the, by the rhinos. But anyway, back to Massey. He tweeted out on March 16, 2020. That was the turning point. That was crossing the line, but no one cared, bizarrely. Six hours before 15 Days to Flatten the Curve was announced, by Trump, by the way, the greater harm to society is the public's unquestioning acceptance of the unchecked authority of governments to force private behavior and disrupt economies. When this is over, I fear FDR's internment of Japanese Americans is going to look like a light touch. And, and, and he's, he is not wrong. Now, while you might say that they didn't in mass round up, they rounded up some people, um, both for COVID and January 6th, but in mass do it as much as they did with the Japanese. But, but what I would say is that it grew legs and has been established as precedent much more than that was because that didn't really repeat itself. But this has not even ended. Genocidal shots. Like I said yesterday, if you truly understood the magnitude of what happened with COVID and the shots and everything they did and everything they have planned and everything they're continuing to do and working towards, you wouldn't need to find new things to be like, oh, that's a step over the line. Or this is, they already did the worst genocide you could imagine. But that has not been conveyed to the voters. Because Republicans are subversive and conservatives are brain dead. There's another thing that Thomas Massey texted me to get today that I actually forgot about that sheds light on how, again, the revolution was March 2020, not last night's speech. And Biden is not the point, but the broader federal deep state apparatus, particularly Yes, the military and intel and defense apparatus, national security apparatus that Republicans and conservatives to this day still champion and want to fund and give pay raises without at least putting restrictions on the activities that they could engage in. But first, a word from our sponsor today, Patriot Academy. Do you know how to shoot straight? Do you know how to shoot at all? Do you know how to draw from a holster? Most conservatives own guns, maybe even carry but very few of us, as is true of other policies, live the conservatism we espouse. It's one thing to believe in the Second Amendment. It's another thing to properly, responsibly learn how to do it. As you well know, the last couple of years I've been sponsoring Patriot Academy. I've been honored to be a part of their 
A um, couple times a year, we do this constitutional handgun defense training. Uh, Rick Green hosts the Constitutional Defense Course. It's a four-day course. This one's hosted uh, in Northeast New Mexico at the NRA Whittington Center in Colfax County, New Mexico. Beautiful, beautiful area. Look it up. September 25th to 29th and October 2nd to 6th. So two different four-day courses. Probably the most beautiful weather um, for that area uh, that time of year. Great time to be doing this outdoors. You're going to learn how to um, – and you don't have, have to have any experience. You're going to learn how to properly draw from the holster, how to clear malfunctions, hone in on your trigger control, sight alignment, marksmanship, safety, safety awareness, um, and then study the Constitution at night all with – Rick Green and the greatest instructors in handgun training in America today. So again, go to patriotacademy.com slash Daniel to find out more details, limited spots. So make sure you register today. So folks, we've already gone through the fourth Reich. What more could they do to us? Lock us down, muzzle our mouths and noses. Two-year-olds wrestled to the ground, dragged off planes. I mean, yellow star is yesterday's technology. The surveillance, the control, the millions of people dead from their policies. Trapping us into a building, setting it on fire, blocking the doorways, blocking treatment. The juxtaposition of the therapeutics they criminalized even for your own choice to use on your deathbed in the hospitals to the therapeutics they will promote, fund, and mandate. The killing fields of the hospitals, what they what, what, what became ubiquitous. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more with a special guest, one of the greatest doctors in the world on this coming up criminalizing the doctors that selflessly risk their own lives getting COVID early on to treat people and save thousands of lives. Some of them, including our guest today, brought up on criminal charges. It's happened globally in almost every country while exalting those doctors that were killing people. We lived through this. It's still going on. We have not rectified this. I see as I'm talking now, uh, Joseph Latipo, the Surgeon General of Florida, he's tweeting out the studies, you know, the P- Peter Dalshi study that literally shows straight up two to three times more net hospitalizations and injuries from the shots than benefits. This is all age groups. Straight up from Pfizer and Moderna's own trial participants. They knew this from day one. This is their own participants. And it's even worse if you would do long term, but they unblinded them early on. And he's the only one. All other 49, including every other red state, Texas, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Kansas, South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, you name it. The health department, health commissioners, surgeon generals, they're just as bad as the Democrats. To this day, they're promoting the worst genocidal things. They would never promote abortion, and even then, that's more optional. This you have no enlightened consent on. Everyone knows what's going to happen when you do an abortion. This is 10 times worse. And they won't even lift a finger. But it's all about the optics of Joe Biden. I mean, that's... I I don't disagree. It's horrible. He's a horrible person. But he's also insane. 
the real problem that's uncomfortable for us to imagine is the military national security state. The more I think about it, I, I, I didn't even realize it until fairly recently with the terrific guests we've had, things that Whitney Webb said and Andrew Huff, who outed that Peter Daszak, likely the player behind COVID, was a CIA agent. Now that we understand what the CIA and FBI do and DOD, our own military, I'm sorry. It doesn't besmirch what you know the average grunt signs up for or even the average person goes to West Point to, 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 to lead, but that's what's become of our military leadership. It is what it is. You're not going to fix that. We have to build something new. I challenge you to show where I'm wrong. Even what I'm suggesting is, is, is very daunting because the states are messed up too. But show me any other option. But the notion that you're going to fix the federal government, it is gone. It needs to be confined, defeated, isolated, interposed against through as many states as possible. You are not the, the, the military was our pride, but it's been captured. So now it has to be blown up because it's going to be used against us. When Biden said F-15s, you know, oh, you, your guns aren't going to help against us. He was actually right. He was espousing what I've said for a long time. The Second Amendment is not where it's at. Not that I don't support it, but that's not enough. We need to start talking about working together, getting in. First, we have to get in our people at a local level, demand what to do in these states and counties, have citizens' posses to working together with the sheriff, signing them up for the state guards that will defend the state against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Anything short of that, even even what I'm suggesting, is late in the game. Does the part of the Declaration of Independence that discusses a train of usurpations and that it's our duty, it's our obligation to throw off this tyrannical government, we are light years ahead of that threshold that our founders envisioned would trigger the invocation of that right. What does that mean? We need to be discussing how do we successfully do that in a way that makes sense, doesn't cost lives, that's going to succeed. Use the political system, the doctrine of least magistrate that we at least have. Why aren't we discussing the fact that Republicans right now control 20 state supermajorities? And if all the entire apparatus of the conservative talk noise machine would work their pressure on Greg Abbott, on Kevin Stitt, on the Idaho governor, Henry McMaster in South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, you name it. To right now convene a special session and get together with a joint statement and say, we have the rise of the Fourth Reich at a federal level. Look at what they're doing. List a 20 point list of grievances and then create a plan. What are you going to do to secure health care, the food supply, energy, interpose against federal tyranny, which, which works together with China? Again, everything that China does, you see them squabbling for food now. They have another 10 million person lockdown. That's what they plan for us. Whitney Webb said it on my show two days ago so eloquently. The national security state is so, it is so embedded with this mindset of that you have to beat the enemies by acting like them and acting like them better. Everything you see China do 
That's why it's going to come here. Notice, and it does. That's why Liz Cheney was so fanatic about COVID fascism. Her father was the original biomedical fascist. Dick Cheney wanted to, in, in, in the wake of 9-11, inject everyone with that poisonous ACAM 2000 smallpox shot that causes heart attacks and myocarditis. That's what they believe in, the national security hawks. It's not about national security. It's not about fighting terrorism. They are the terrorists. They are the bioterrorists. Everything they said Bin Laden was going to do, they actually did. And did it spectacularly more with more money and resources than any you know Islamic group could have ever done. And they got away with it. And still no one's call, calling them out. In polling, it's not even the number seven issue among Republicans because no one teaches them what's going on. I know I danced around a lot here, but before we get to our guest, I, I want to finally get to the point I'm going to make here. So Massey texted me this. This is from March 18th, 2020, that, that, that critical week that 99% of the conservative movement slept through. Newsweek magazine exclusive inside the military's top secret plans if coronavirus cripples the government. Even as President Trump says he tested negative for coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic raises the fear that huge swaths of the executive branch or even Congress and the Supreme Court could be disabled, forcing the implementation of continuity of government plans. Above top secret contingency plans already exist for what the military is supposed to do if all the constitutional successors are incapacitated. Standby orders were issued more than three weeks ago to ready these plans, not just to protect Washington, but also to prepare the possibility of some form of martial law. And, and we basically had de facto decentralized patchwork of martial law. But they, were, they, they had these plans ready. According to new documents, interviews with the military experts, the various plans codenamed Octagon, Freejack, and Zodiac are the underground laws to ensure government continuity. They are so secret that under these extraordinary plans, devolution could circumvent the normal constitutional provisions for government succession. We're in new territory, says one senior officer. The entire post-9-11 paradigm of emergency planning thrown out the window. The officer jokes in the kind of morbid humid humor characteristic of the slow-moving disaster that America had better learn who General Terrence J. O'Shaughnessy is. He is the combatant commander for the U.S. and would be, in theory, in charge of Washington if Washington were eviscerated. And... If you look at this guy, O'Shaughnessy, look him up at the Chamber of Commerce, General Terrence O'Shaughnessy, he was on cable news at the time during that week. He would have been the designated guy. This is, this is not a right-wing blog. This is Newsweek. This was real, and it still is real. They still have these plans, and they're planning them on God knows the litany of things that they're going to bring out and that the conservative movement and conservative talk radio will fall for in three seconds, just like they fell for COVID and they fell for Ukraine and they fell to a large extent for BLM and January 6th and they'll fall for the next thing. They have this planned. It's not about Joe Biden. This is much bigger than him. This is much bigger than him. So if you understand the diagnosis of the problem, just like you couldn't treat COVID if you didn't properly diagnose its pathophysiology, same thing here. What is going on here? 
oh, uh, Joe Biden. It's not about Joe Biden. You can't vote your way out of this, especially at a federal level. And anyway, the type of candidates we have are literally controlled opposition. And by the way, that's the point of the speech. They're literally telling you who they fear. They fear people like this, like you in the audience. They don't fear Sean Hannity's audience. They made it very clear they want the only opposition in this country to be a controlled opposition. The minute you have voices like our own and Thomas Massey gain steam, that's a threat because that's a real opposition. The phony opposition is not just neutered. It's actually there by design as the lookout. Like I say, the Democrats set the building on fire with the people trapped in it. The Republicans are the fat rear end standing in the corridor to make sure nobody could escape. But more importantly, no legitimate opposition could arise and rush in and put out the fire because they fill that vacuum, the natural desire for two parties, you know, two sides of a story. They fill it right away. Boom, they fill that slot. It's actually a mechanism of action of ivermectin. It fills a certain slot that the virus takes up. So, you know, it, it, it preempts it. That's, that's what the Republican Party does. It, it preempts that slot that the public naturally is going to long for. Okay, so what the Democrats are going to say, well, what's the other side? Well, this is what it is. And Biden is, it's an olive branch to Mitch McConnell to say, join with us in marginalizing our voices. We're a threat to democracy. Which is rich. He talked about a threat to privacy while he's setting up literally a Chinese-style Fourth Reich state, transhuman surveillance state that were nothing but a, a bag of, of mashed potatoes and lettuce in a grocery store with a QR code. But then again, Republicans don't talk about that. So he's able to accuse us of, of being against privacy and liberty. But this Newsweek article, look it up, the title, Exclusive Inside the Military's Top Secret Plans if coronavirus cripples the government. This is a big, big deal. This, I'm telling you, it's there. This is bigger than even the FBI. It's DOD and CIA. You need to understand, it's not just DHS and the FBI, oh, they're focused on us instead of domestic Islamic terrorists or Antifa and you know, left-wing terror groups. No. It's the military and CIA, which prima facie, their purview is only external and mainly overseas. They're focused on us. You could have your vision of be all you could be, and there's still patriotic, amazing people still serving, but increasingly, I'd say get out. But they're not the ones calling the shots. You have to understand that. We've cried over the military. We've mourned over it. It is what it is. You have to recognize it's a threat to us. The Republicans' answer is to fund it even more rather than saying we are going to – you need 10 Republicans. So you could say you could have Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, whatever, but we should be able to pressure a few enough to deny the 60 votes and to shut it down, that we will have a government shutdown to harness national attention on all of these issues, everything they've done on spying, surveilling, killing us, locking us down, violating every constitutional provision, every human right, every legal protection, every social norm, every medical norm, collaborating with big tech to literally censor every human being alive, censor every doctor from treating their patients. 
And that's where I want to want to pick it up with our special guest. Now, folks, perhaps the biggest issue of this show the last two years has been a very bizarre issue historically, very much not political in the scheme of what we typically focus on. And that is the war on COVID treatment, which has its roots in the war on all free market medicine, all doctor-patient relationships. And the reason why I focused on this and the reason why such a significant portion of our book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, is about this, the, the, the way they treated people in the hospitals, the way they would go after doctors who would selflessly save lives, is because that is the Rosetta Stone to what is going on. That is what tipped me off to the fact, oh, this is not just your run-of-the-mill opportunity that these global governments see to control people and implement their policies, their uh, political and social agendas. This is something even more sinister than that, because why in the world would you want more people to die and block treatments? Why would you do that? And it's clearly about more than, than just greed. It is something much broader. And we're seeing this happen globally it's not an american problem it is this is a global problem and that's the theme for today you can't vote your way out of it simply focusing on a federal election this is a much more systemic problem that if we don't erect firewalls at a political level but also a social level create parallel economies medically and have that protected at a state and local level and we have a lot of agenda items in our book and we're pushing it as we speak now. I'm actually working with some state legislatures. This is what we need to do to make sure that medical boards and state licensure agencies cannot go after doctors. This is where it's at. It's not just about Joe Biden's speech. This has been going on for two and a half years. And there's really not been much of an impetus to do much about this. Now, I've had a lot of good doctors on the show. There's one in particular I've been meaning to get on, and this gives us more of an international perspective, and that's Dr. Jackie Stone. She has treated countless, countless patients in Zimbabwe. She's a family medicine physician and a biochemist based in Harare, Zimbabwe. Um, she helped form the Zimbabwe COVID Frontline Clinicians Society. And like many of the doctors here, rather than being rewarded and heralded as an example of which to follow a paradigm to follow in medical treatment. Instead, she's been vilified. She actually has a court case pending now with charges against her. We'll get into that. So this, this is not just an American problem. She's also out with a study she co-authored showing tremendous benefits to ivermectin, an ivermectin-based protocol uh, for late-stage COVID patients deep in the cytokine storm with their, their SATs dropping and miraculously turning around within 24 hours. We'll get into that. By the way, likewise, Dr. Flavio Cattagiani, one of our favorite guests, he also has a study out uh, from Brazil. Uh, you look at the contrast, the contrast of data from what they vilified to what they mandated, and you cannot escape you cannot escape the conclusion that this is a much darker, darker agenda, much greater than just vote Joe Biden out. It has nothing to do with Joe Biden. He's the smallest fish in this pond. This is a global, global pro problem. By the way, Dr. Cartagiani, 
federal officials in Brazil raided his home and his clinic to, to search out some of his documents and data going after him too. Why? Why? So this is a broad global problem. So with us today to give us more perspective on this and more is none other than Dr. Jackie Stone. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today on Blaze Media. Thanks, Daniel. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, so now I know there's a lot of American politics thrown in there that probably bores you, but I want you to give us the perspective from where you sit. Um, Very few Americans are familiar with the political dynamic, much less the medical culture in a place like Zimbabwe. Could you just give us a little bit of a synopsis of what you have done since 2020 in treating patients? Um, we have we have talked a lot about your protocol. Colloidal silver is one of the ones that, that people have been using because of your work um, and the response to it from the government and, and, the, and the medical uh, system in Zimbabwe and how that sheds light on on what Americans are seeing here. Okay, thanks, Daniel. Um, I think it's worth saying that I have taken an international interest because the same things happened all over the world at the same time. So in 2020, we got our first case on the 19th of Feb 2020. At that stage, there were 17 ventilators in the country that were operational and staffed in the public sector and the private sector were not taking COVID patients. The physicians weren't answering their phones and the primary care doctors were faced with these patients. And when we heard the advice coming from people that we would normally trust, which includes people, um, includes the American medical system, the UK medical system and Australia, they said, do nothing, let the patient go home and come back when they deteriorate. Now, African doctors or African trained doctors know how to treat infectious disease. You hit it hard, you hit it early, and you hit it with combination therapy. We've been through an HIV pandemic. We've been through, well, I went through SARS-1 when I was in the Middle East. I was working in the airline industry. You don't sit back and do nothing and let your patient deteriorate. If I was to let a malaria patient go home and wait until they had cerebral malaria and their fingers and toes fell off, I would be medically negligent. And the same would apply if I applied late treatment to an HIV patient. I worked in London in the 1990s during the HIV pandemic. And the only thing that worked was triple therapy and the deaths stopped. So as early as March 2020, we figured that anything that put zinc into the cell would stop an RNA virus. Very much like Dr. Zelenko, who I have to give absolute credit to, and we we are so sad about his passing. But Dr. Zelenko said azithromycin, zinc, and hydroxychloroquine are expected to work because they put zinc into the cell. That data has been available since the 90s. And it worked. And by April 2020, we knew that the question was not, is there sufficient evidence? The question was, does it work better than doing nothing? And the answer was unquestionably yes. So we started with zinc, azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine, and the silver nebs, which are remarkably safe. And I don't like calling it colloidal silver because that's open. It's a huge umbrella. You have ionic silver and nano silver, and it needs to be quantified 
in terms of how much is in there mm. and what the particle sizes are. Anyway, getting on to what happened after that, we got hit in July 2020 with a massive wave. And we had patients dying in their cars. And the only people available were the primary care physicians. So we turned staff rooms. We put four beds in a staff room with oxygen and nurses and set up 24-hour what can best be called, uh, it isn't a ward because it wasn't a medical unit. Patients had to bring their own food. They had to go and get their own medications, all that sort of thing. And the silver and uh, azithro and the hydroxy were working for a while. We got overwhelmed, especially when patients presented late. And I was liaising with a colleague in South Africa, Dr. Martin Gill, who is also aviation trained. I'm aviation trained. My experience of the States is at the Aerospace Medical Association conferences. And he said, why don't you try ivermectin? And I'd been following Wagstaff and Thomas Barodi and all their stuff that we can end this pandemic by Christmas. So we introduced ivermectin. And another point to make is that the only time I'd ever used ivermectin was in Australia. Hmm. And every time there was a nursing home outbreak of scabies, the nurses would come and make me sign all these scripts for ivermectin, which was incredibly safe. And I didn't even know it was an animal drug. I didn't know it was a veterinary medication. I kind of only experienced it as a human medication. And I knew how safe it was, so we added it. It was the 7th of August, 2020. Around the time Peter McCulloch's paper was coming up on sequenced multidrug therapy, the same time as the FLCCC were releasing their stuff. And I left at about midnight with three patients, one of whom was absolutely critical. I, I knew he'd be dead by morning. And I kind of prepared the family for that. And two who, you know, you kind of start to brace yourself once you've seen enough of this. Walked in the next morning, and there they all were, sitting up on oxygen, four liters a minute instead of 10 liters a minute, and all much, much better. Mm. And I could show you a really interesting slide. One patient was actually saturating at 98% when I left on oxygen, 10 liters a minute. But his pulse waveform was 3D, irregular, very shallow. His circulation was dreadful. He was very confused. He was moribund. By the next morning, his pulse waveform was amazing. It was like a normal 80 per minute and high amplitude and a nice bounding pulse peripherally. And he was totally lucid. And the thing that was interesting is we ran a clotting profile on him, which is called a D-dimer for people who are yep. familiar with the, with the literature. And he went from 2,500 to over 10,000. And I've phoned the home nurse, because we actually sent him home, and said, look, he's, he's going to die. And she said, well, he's actually wanting to go for a walk. And what we learned was that a D-dimer is a breakdown product of clots. It is not a marker of clotting, it's a marker of breakdown. And we suddenly realized when the D-dimer rocketed, the patients got better. Huh. And from that, we formed a theory. That's how I got hold of David Scheim, who's on the paper, because his whole theory was that COVID-19 is not a respiratory disease, it's a vascular disease. Yes. And it's caused by clumping of red cells and microclots throughout the circulation. And I sent him the pictures of these monitors and how they changed. And that's how I got in contact with him. And that's kind of 
how the paper progressed. Um, Martin Gill got hold of Colleen Aldous, who is a professor of research in KwaZulu-Natal, and we started liaising, and we started seeing over and over and over again, you started treating these patients, and within 24 hours, they were going home, either saturating normally or with a home nurse on home oxygen. Now, at the time, which was in 2020, I was working with another doctor who sent me a lot of patients in the public service. So I was seeing, I don't know who they were, I just knew that this doctor had referred them. I found out later that they were senior army generals, people high up in the public service, people who were very politically influential. And they all survived once we commenced ivermectin. Various people, even more senior, went to a fancy hospital down the road that just gave oxygen and they all died. And it became sort of very, people worked out, because ivermectin is widely available in Zimbabwe, that this stuff was working. We roll on to December 2020, doctors all over the world, Pierre Corey, Peter McCulloch, uh, Paul Merrick, uh, Tess Laurie, Andrew Hill, Martin Gill, Colleen Aldous, all talking about how ivermectin was the way out of the pandemic. And I forgot to mention Tom Barodi because a lot of us have used his protocols. And basically, Andrew Hill told us to get ready to import this drug on a large scale because it worked. And then on the 17th of January last year, which is around, I think, when Simone Gold um, got into trouble in America. Yes. Andrew Hill And also around when the vaccines were distributed widely in America and the UK. Yes, it also coincided with various people on our expert advisory board for COVID landing back from China, having discussed um, vaccination in Zimbabwe with China, because we have no mRNA vaccines here. We only have Sinovac and Sinopharm. Hmm. which is possibly one of the reasons that we are not seeing any more COVID. I was, I was going to get to that because I don't mean to jump around too much here, but um, I'm reminiscing as you're talking about this, and ivermectin was almost like a cure, whereas you go to mid-2021 when you had the supposed Delta variant in the U.S., and it was so horrendous it was like 10 times worse than 2020 and then ivermectin was important but for a lot of people it wasn't enough it was so thrombotic it was so all-encompassing that you needed to throw so many things at it and 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 it was like we're thinking man gone are those days when you have someone late stage and they turn around within 24 hours um and i was thinking about you know to this day we wonder what would have happened had we not had those vaccines um, released? You know, we could have gotten everyone through the original strain with low-dose ivermectin and not much more, and yet that ship has sailed, and this thing seems to go on and on and on. Okay, so the Delta wave in Zimbabwe was brought under control very, very quickly, but it was much worse than the first wave. And the one, there's a few things about ivermectin. It likes company. Ivermectin on its own, it's a zinc ionophore is one of its actions, and 
if you use, and you'll see from the graphs that I've sent you, when we use triple therapy, which is ivermectin, doxycycline, and zinc together, we see a far greater effect than we do when we use ivermectin as monotherapy. In the Delta wave, we doubled the dose and we doubled the time. So we went to a minimum of 0.4 milligrams per kilo daily for a minimum of 10 days with doxycycline, ivermectin, zinc, vitamin D, and vitamin C. Yep, and, 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 and Dr. Cartagiani's study that came out around the same time yours, yours did this week was focused just on that point that dose dependency does matter. A hundred percent. Tom Barodi quoted that with some of these trials, like the Together trial and a few of the other ones, you know, if you take a quarter of an aspirin for a migraine and it doesn't work, it's because you didn't take enough. You should take three by 300 milligrams. So it's totally dose dependent. And if the way that I describe it to patients if you imagine that this virus is replicating every six hours, if you've got one million viruses on day one, 72 hours later, you've got two billion. If you're trying to coat a million viruses, you need a certain dose. I treat patients on day one of their therapy, they need five days. But if we wait until 72 hours later, we've now got two billion viruses to coat, as opposed to one million. Do the maths, it goes one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, and you can do it your, yourself. But if you're looking at a four to six hour doubling time, if you wait for three days, you need high dose. The biggest dose I've ever seen given to a patient, the patient was saturating at 39% on 10 liters a minute of oxygen. How is someone and the alive? Nurse phoned me, well, the nurse phoned me at three o'clock in the morning saying, what do I do? And I said, well, there's only three things you can't overdose with. Give more steroid, give more ivermectin and give more silver. And she, it took her 14 hours to get an ambulance to transfer that patient. And that patient is alive today. We did an interview with mm -hmm. him. I mean, it took him three weeks to get out of hospital. Sure. But he, he basically got 300 milligrams of ivermectin in 28 hours because she just kept giving it. Hmm. Yeah, so it's so it's literally the reverse of the mRNAs where they're also dose-dependent in the sense that you'll die after a certain amount. Um, here, it, you know, you, you in order to achieve the efficacy, you're not going to reach that toxicity ceiling, um, you know, until you get much higher. The only patients I have seen in this wave that I've considered hospitalizing or sending home on home oxygen or who have been very, very sick have been vaccinated outside of the country with mRNA vaccines. Everybody else in Zimbabwe has basically their attitude is, right, well, we know what to do because it's readily available over the counter here. Okay. It's not supposed to be over the counter, but it's a PP10, which means that a pharmacist can dispense it if there's an emergency, like so malaria. This is what I'm confused about then. I always thought Zimbabwe is a type of country that we should be mimicking that it's, it's the greedy, corrupt Western governments. Um, the U.S. obviously is the home of all of this, Pfizer, Moderna. So you're going to have the cronyism, the control that is going to trump science and medicine and saving lives. But you go out to third world countries that don't have enough money to pay for the rope to hang themselves like we do here. And they're going to actually treat it like a battlefield situation, actually try to do what works. 
But then I see that you seem to be in bigger trouble than almost any doctor I know here. What's up with that? Okay. So, um, 2020, the frontline clinicians, primary care physicians here were considered heroes. January 2021, I was detained on the 19th of January 2021 at Harare Central Prison. And the person that reported me was the registrar of our medical council who had me arrested, or didn't have me arrested, had me, I went down voluntarily. So my first charge was dealing in dangerous drugs and making chemical poisons. But then I think they figured out that that wasn't going to stick, so they did me for advertising. And I spent about eight hours in the narcotics division at Harare Central Prison. And when they told me that they were detaining me potentially for a month without bail or trial, I said, well, then can you please bring down my oxygen? And they said, well, what do you need oxygen for? I said, well, I'm still on oxygen at night. I just had, I had COVID on the third. And apparently I'm the fastest person to exit the narcotics division of Harare Central Prison because five minutes later I was on the pavement. <laughs> because everybody, when she's got COVID, get her out of here. And what was interesting was the utter fear of the police when they realized that I was potentially going to infect them and the brainwashing of people because the doctors knew that we had treatments, the nurses knew we had treatments, we weren't scared of it at all. But the police were absolutely terrified of me mm. the moment that they realized that I'd been infected. So COVID-19 actually saved me from being jailed. Um, after that, obviously all the legal proceedings happened and it's become increasingly clear the head of our medical council is on the special advisory group of experts for vaccines with WHO. The person that reported me to the medical council is employed by the Wellcome Trust. She is not a Zimbabwean. She is a professor of infectious disease employed by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. One of the other people who's very high up on the COVID task force is clearly associated with Unitaid. And I'm not sure if you know, but in March, April 2020, WHO appointed Wellcome Trust and Unitaid to run the ACT-A, which is the Access to COVID Therapeutics Accelerator Program, mm. which is designed to get therapeutics, COVID therapeutics, in inverted commas, commas patented across the globe. So the government of Zimbabwe has actually been incredibly supportive because on the 23rd of January, this professor gave a talk where she said there was insufficient evidence on ivermectin just after Andrew Hill kind of flipped over flipped, after yeah. he got his $40 million um, or after his university were paid out by Unitaid. And shortly after that, we lost two professors of medicine and three cabinet ministers to covid and as a group of primary care physicians, we wrote a letter to the Permanent Secretary of Health saying what we have seen works. And on the 26th of Jan 2021, he came back and said that while the Ministry of Health have to acknowledge that they must protect the public, they also must not deny them effective treatments. And we became the biggest importer of ivermectin in the world in January 2021. 
But how so does none that, of that women did it behind this. How does that happen when you're being criminally charged at the same time? Doesn't government have to go along with that? Well, the criminal charges were laid on the 17th of January prior to that coming out. But then how come they weren't and, dismissed? Well, I've been through four disciplinary hearings, um, which were really a kangaroo court effectively. So my license is restricted. I have to practice under supervision. I have, I think I'm the only doctor in Zimbabwe that's officially not allowed to prescribe ivermectin, which is why I know the pharmacies will give it over the counter. Um, And there's all sorts of, I've got an A4 page of restrictions from medical counsel. In terms of the criminal charges, once they've been laid, they cannot be withdrawn. So I've had to go through the prosecution process in the courts. Do do I have this concept correct that in the Western countries, like the U.S., the U.K., so then it's straight up the government and the pharmaceutical companies domestically that pretty much own the doctors, the associations, the medical boards, whereas if you go out to the non-Western countries, you go out to Africa, so then maybe you don't have so much of the government pharma industry there, but it's the WHO that's the big player. Look, I think that the pharmaceutical industry are a huge player because they fund those entities. But what they've done in Africa is they've captured the medical systems and the regulators rather than the governments. Hmm. And the again, we talk about governments. I'm very involved with South Africa as well. Certain members of the government will seem to be benefiting from financially from COVID, and those people will tend to appoint experts, and I use that term extremely loosely, um, but a government-appointed expert will do what that particular government official wants and will say what they want them to say. So we do have the um, same sort of issues. Big Pharma are definitely in there, but they focus on capturing the medical business. And for 20 years in the States, your fee-for-service structure has promoted medical business. Expecting Big Pharma to be interested in health is like expecting an arms dealer to be interested in world peace. (laughs) They want to keep people sick. Yes. They want the intensivists and our physicians want the patient in hospital because they're getting thousands of dollars a day in terms of medication and ICU beds. So the last thing they want is early treatment. There's a massive conflict. So I thought that in your country, it wouldn't be as much of a big business because if the money ain't there, the money is not there. See here, there's an unlimited supply of federally printed money. You're talking about trillions of dollars. It just comes out of nowhere. And they, 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 you know, like a bunch of drug dealers uh, swish it around to the drug companies, the insurance cartel, because what we have in America is what I call venture socialism. The private part is not really private and the public is not fully public. It's all one big, you know, in other words, Medicaid and Medicare isn't really, it's administered by United Health and whatever. And then United Health is all propped up by the tendentious treatment of the regulatory state, the 
tax exclusion from employers to fund basically, you know, rather than 20000 more in salary, here, well, let's go give it to the cartel for your so-called medical benefits. And so there's a ton of money to go around until the system collapses and, and the money's no more. But in a country like Zimbabwe, my impression was that, hey, you know, they, they don't have the money to play those games, so they just had to kind of look at what works. So in the private sector, it's very much fee-for-service. So there's a lot of over-servicing, over-admitting. In the public sector, people have nothing. And what has been interesting is watching the divisions that have happened between doctors. So the primary care doctors are much more used to dealing with patients who cannot afford mm. $5,400 for a hospital admission, which is what it costs before you walk in the door. The... Private sector doctors are the ones pushing the remdesivir, the monoclonal antibodies, and the very expensive drugs to a group that is less than 1% of the population. But what is, it hasn't just divided the doctors. The ivermectin issue has divided the politicians as well. Mm. And I think one thing about COVID is it certainly demonstrated who has integrity, courage, and conviction, yes. and who's in it for the money. Yes. So the on the political front, one of the problems, and there's some very interesting documentation on this, it is in the interests of the Northern Hemisphere to convince Africa that we are poor because they need our natural resources. Zimbabwe has more minerals under its soil per square kilometer than anywhere else in the world. We are one of yes. the richest nations in the world. But supra-governmental people, authorities will lend us money knowing that we can't pay it back and then they take the coal fields or the lithium mines <laughs> or the platinum or whatever it is. So one of the reasons Zimbabwe won't upset WHO is because they pay for our malaria and HIV programs. We're in act and those are NGOs, which are non-government organizations, will fund enormous amounts of money to cover what we should be covering because we should be producing in this country. We should not be exporting every raw material. We should be manufacturing here and we should be lending money to everybody else. But it is in the interests of various political, well, it's in the political interests of the first world and of the Northern Hemisphere to keep Africa at a point where we export all of our natural resources to them. Well, now I think we understand a little bit about the Fauci's playground and all the experimentations that were going on, uh, why they want to keep Africa a certain way. And, and I find it amusing, but, but tr tragic at the same time, how typically Africa was the, they were the lab rats. Now the West was the lab rats, and they're upset that most of Africa was left unscathed by this, and they're working frantically to juice up the numbers and, and try to... Uh, get them a shot that they don't need, even if it did work and certainly wasn't dangerous. And it's it's just appalling and disgusting. Um, I wanted to just get in the remaining few minutes here to talk about, can you give us top lines about your results that you feel like how many patients you treated the results and then the subset that you chose for this study that you co-authored, published in Biologics this week on on um, oxygen saturation levels and, and ivermectin-based protocol? Sure. So there were 17 primary care doctors in the Zimbabwe Frontline COVID Clinician Society. Five gave us data. 
we selected 104 patients who were saturating between 51% and 90%. And we basically demonstrated a less than 1% mortality, which compared with a 35.4% mortality in the state hospital. So we reduced mortality by over 35-fold with combination treatment and home therapy. But those figures have all been already proven. So we went away from mortality, and David Scheim focused on 34 patients at a point where there were no hospital beds, no oxygen, no staff who were treated at home with triple therapy and no oxygen. And we noted this rapid increase in oxygen saturations because all patients were given a pulse oximeter. And basically, none of those patients died, despite some of them saturating in the 70s. And within 24 hours, they had all but one in, had re-oxygenated to a point where they didn't need home oxygen. So like in the and 90s. That, yeah. So we some of them were in the high 80s. But the, the point was that there was a significant and rapid increase in oxygen, which mirrors Dr. Sabine Hazan's work and also mirrors some of the South American studies that have yes. also been done. Although the interesting thing about the South American study is they only use 12 milligrams a day for five days. Now, your average COVID patient is 90 kilos, so we were using easily yeah. double what they well, well, were yeah, using. Yeah, and I would argue, and I think Dr. Flavio would readily admit this, this is all the data they compiled is exhaustive, but this was done in 2020 with the original strain um, with what I would argue is Dr. Gert Vandenbosch's theory is that you know with the viral immune escape after the vaccines, this, this virus became more virulent, so people needed more. But So he was working with the original strain, which I certainly, I've spoken to doctors here, and they were seeing that. They were seeing people late stage on ventilators. They'd give them 0.2 migs per kg, and they were turning around. Obviously, those days are kind of over with the, I mean, now now most aren't having problems with the new Omicron ones, but kind of going back to Delta, um, how, I mean, would you say you treated at least 1,000 patients? Between us, probably more. Wow. The, the 0.2 per kilo, what we discovered was that 0.2 per kilo will turn, the, will keep the patient alive, but they're going to take three weeks to get better. Yes. So one of my patients came in, and this is a funny story that will end things rather well, but one of my patients came in with me having prescribed her 0.2 per kilo for five days, and I gave her one ivermectin tablet to give to her husband and told her to come back the next day. She came back the next day, and my lesson or message, perhaps, is don't tell a hypoxic patient what to do, write it down. Because she came back the next day, and I said, so have you taken today's dose? And she said, no. So I said, well, where, did you give Peter his dose? No. Well, what happened? She said, well, you gave me six tablets. I took all of them. <laughs> oh, my God. So she took 72 milligrams of ivermectin, and the next day she was fine. And lots and lots of people overdosed on it accidentally and we know of only wow. one there's a south african study where 18 people try to kill themselves with ivermectin so only one succeeded he drank 660 mils which is 6.6 .6 grams and took it with rat poison the other 17 all survived and they took 500 i, I always wondered that what you're saying i always was curious about this because because obviously we 
the problem in America is, and I'm sure it was this way in most countries, the doctors already knew they were treading on thin ice. So, you know, the, the big issue they started going after doctors with was the dosage. And I always wonder, like, look, we all wish you could take monotherapy, low dose, and that knocks it away. But I think we would all rather come away with no one dying, even if you have to take more whatever, as long as it doesn't, that itself doesn't kill them. And we always knew from the cancer studies with ivermectin, because it does seem to have some pretty promising mechanisms against certain cancers, that you could take exponentially more. And I always wondered, yeah, what would happen if you would flood the zone with it? So you're, you're telling this audience that you kind of accidentally dabbled with that. Well, the patients were dabbling with it because they couldn't get it um, from many their own GPs because they were too scared to prescribe it. So personally, I was saturating at about 66% um, when I got COVID in January 2021. And I took 40 milligrams. I wasn't even prepared to consider anything less than 0.6 per kilo. Um, and four hours later, I took another 30, and four hours later, I took another 30. Now, what you must warn patients about is that one in five will get visual side effects, and it's dose-dependent. So they might get blurring of vision, yes. and they might get tunnel vision. Personally, I everything looked like candy floss in my peripheral vision. How I kind of had get that low? Um, basically, what I think happens with COVID is you feel dreadful for about a week, but we'd been working throughout the Christmas break, throughout the New Year break. And I went down on the third and I thought I was just tired. And then I suddenly, it felt like I'd been hit with malaria and pneumonia at once and I went down very quickly. Now I should have been monitoring my sets. I probably had silent hypoxia. I know when I was infected, which was the 24th of December wow. because we'd been involved in a recess. And I think that I was probably... This is a very strong pattern in COVID. When you go down, you go down very quickly. Yes. Um, that cliff, and that cliff everyone talked about, that once you hit that, um, and that's why I think your study is so compelling, because normally people will laugh at a, a sample of 34, but the thing with that is, when you're talking about COVID patients that got into the 60s in terms of their blood oxygen level, we know how that show ended with most people those people crashed very quickly so to suddenly unexplicably turn around most of them it's it's impossible to not observe some sort of mechanism going on there even though it's a small sample size because that's just reality there were actually hundreds of patients but the 34 were people that were clearly documented to have serial oxygen we had their baseline oxygen and we were monitoring their oxygen over a 48-hour period. And the other thing about them was we didn't include patients that had access to oxygen because you couldn't assess the oxygen saturations of someone who's on oxygen. Mm. So uh, the, the, that 34 Got is it. where the documentation is impeccable mm. because we know that we will be told, and Flavia and I have had this discussion with Pierre Corey about with the TOGETHER trial, it was almost an insult to our intelligence to be told that Southern Hemisphere doctors need to do what the Northern Hemisphere is doing, particularly when you look at our results versus theirs. So when um, we were told that we can't count, and then when the New England Journal of Medicine on the TOGETHER trial gets the denominator wrong, and when they use too little too late, they still get a 60% decrease in mortality, and they won't reply to any of us, when we're saying, please show us the raw data, 
you know, the Southern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere has this, and I've worked, I worked at St. Bartholomew's Hospital for three years. Um, I wouldn't go as far as saying arrogance, but they really do seem to believe, their doctors really do seem to believe that they're top of the pile. You you mean, I'm assuming you mean when you say Northern Hemisphere, you mean U.S. and Europe. Um, because, and UK. Yeah, because the way I view it is more Africa versus the other countries. Because, I mean, the Northern Hemisphere of Africa also had very good results. And yet the Southern Hemisphere of Latin America seemed to have problems. I mean, parts of okay. Latin America. Let me, let me rephrase that. The first world. First world. Okay, first, I just want to make sure you weren't... Low you weren't saying like some sort of a seasonal things for our listeners. So they understand you weren't saying a scientific seasonal distinction. You were addressing more politically the first world countries. I, I, I will tell you, I, I used to be like, man, I'm glad to be in America. I sure don't want to be caught in one of those countries if I'm sick. And what COVID has taught me is like, I would rather be in those countries um, because I, I've always said there's a third world country where you don't have a lot of resources. I believe, and I call it the Fourth Reich, but we're the f fourth world country, which is where God gave you the resources and you use it for evil. You use it to actively stifle common sense. Um, you, you have a patient in respiratory distress, and rather than using nebulized budesonide, using anti-inflammatories, using the right steroids at the right dose, you, you use opioids and, um, and uh, sedatives things that slow down the breathing, things that a first grade, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I know, I mean, it's obvious. Everyone knows this stuff. How could any doctor worth anything think that this is okay to do? And they, they, they were mentally ill. I still can't figure it out. And, and, and this is where I want to end with you, something a little bit more fun and, and incisive. We talked about the political dynamic. I want to speak about the intellectual part of this. I noticed in your background, and I was because I've been noticing this with a lot of doctors, um, that you're a biochemist. Your father was a, a geologist, and yeah, you know, I guess that's why you know a lot about the natural resources of Zimbabwe. I've I've noticed with these doctors that ninety percent of them don't think it's monkey see monkey do. Um, they learn how to do procedures. They don't study pathophysiology, and I I noticed that the ones that are nerds in biochemistry. I got this from Dr. Dan, Scott, Dan Stock, um, but some of our others here that we've worked with, they're very, all the good ones are obsessed with biochemistry. And I know it's hard. I have a niece that's going to medical school and doctors don't like that. It's hard. It's, it's tedious. Um, they want to study the basic biology they need and, and just kind of the procedures. But the chemistry seems to be really what gets them to understand and think in terms of I don't need to have a government edict of you do A, B, and C. I'm going to study pathophysiology of viruses. I'm going to study pharmacology, and I'm going to try to address what's going on. Does that have a lot to do with this? I think it does 100%. And one of the interesting things is that look at the doctors that have gone back to basics. Most of us have a BSc or a BSc honors plus a medical degree. Now, I can tell you that when you're training in medicine, you've got the professor at the front, the two senior consultants or two associate professors behind him, then a bunch of senior consultants, junior consultants. And if you're the medical student, you definitely don't open your mouth. You do what you are told. Otherwise, you are going to be roasted. And it is a very hierarchical patriarchal system. And that is from I trained. I started my training in 84. 
in South Africa where the head of surgery felt that women shouldn't be allowed in medicine at all. So he pretended we weren't there. So the when you go into people who've got a BSc, as far as I know, Paul Merrick's BSc is in pharmacology. Pierre Corey's BSc is in maths. Martin Gill is in maths. Peter McCulloch's got a BSc. In my honors class, our professor would talk absolute rubbish for five minutes. And we'd all be sitting there looking at him. And we'd say, uh, prof, and he's saying, I was wondering how long it will take you. Your job is to challenge me. Mm. So the BSc mentality, the science mentality, is you challenge everything. Why? Are you talking nonsense? Yeah. And it's it's... It's a game almost, you know, you, the yep. profs expect you to challenge them and they expect you to think and yes. you're roasted if you don't think. In medicine, it's got to the point, when I worked in Australia, if you didn't follow protocol and you didn't follow guidelines, heaven help you, you were going to be reported to the council. Wow. So doctors are scared and people have mortgages, they have children, yes. they have school fees, they don't want to challenge the narrative. There are doctors that have been struck off for over two years in Australia, and I'm in contact with one of them at the moment. They have no income. Dr. Simon Gold is a classic example. What they do is they want to shut down something like ivermectin, so they arrest her for something else. Yeah, for literally and stepping message, foot in a public building and giving a speech and walking out. Um, no. Did nothing violent, nothing, anything, and that's that's what it is. But I do think they're scared, but also intellectually they become dumb because it's not just the scared. I would talk to people I know, and I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but after spending a couple hours with Dr. Ryan Cole, I know you you know him. I know more than they know knew their whole life because I'm like, oh, okay, so it's thrombotic, so you do this. You know, he explained the anti-thrombotic mechanisms of, of ivermectin and and that's it was like simple so i would talk to some of the doctors about this and like um phenofibrate and what it would do in the lungs and they would look at me like like i'm from mars they couldn't understand it's not just being scared it's almost like there's something called covid19 and the only thing i understand is there has to be a label of a drug that says covid19 on it from pfizer otherwise i don't know what to do it's like, there's no treatment for COVID-19. Well, what does it do? What, what, what does it do to you? Like, how do, how do you, they, they, they sound like nursery kids. I mean, how could pe doctors be that dumb? I just, I, I've been astounded by that. How, we, we used to have a show here in America, Are You Smarter Than a First Grader? And, and that's what they wore. They're just dumb as mud and I can't figure it out. I'm saying over and beyond the cronyism, scared, group think how could you be part of a profession that even a layman would know you don't slow down someone's breathing you give anti-inflammatories you don't put pro-inflammatories into their body the remdesivir stuff how anyone with a brain could know it had no anti-inflammatory qualities and even if it worked it would have to be pre-hospitalization how could anyone not think that and it's almost spiritual i don't know final word here and then we'll sew up what I'd say is all this started in the 90s. And I think the medical profession and the medical schools and the research departments were captured in the 90s because I distinctly remember a change when evidence-based medicine suddenly became required so that you didn't get sued. Mm. 
Mm. Prior to that, doctors thought for themselves. After about 2000, when the evidence-based medicine was really pushed by big pharma, and the only people that could afford to do those kind of trials were big pharma, <laughs> you started to see that doctors could no longer think. And we've had a discussion in our group of doctors. Those doctors that are violently opposed to ivermectin and are very pro... Um, Anything the Pfizer puts out. Pharma model. Yeah, whatever they put is out, it's it all their, good. Monopiravir. But is it their fault? Because there's been almost a psychological operations two decade of brainwashing. And people have bought into protocols and following whatever they're told to do for so long that they just buy into doing what they're told. There's never been an infectious disease that I know of where you're told to do nothing until the patient is critical. Yep. It, it defies But it was worse than logic. that. Everything they did was in reverse. Everything they did was harmful. There's not a single thing. I mean, they, rather than telling people to take aspirin or Advil, they said to take Tylenol, which depletes your glutathione. You know, like they thought of everything, these guys. And, and that's what I, I can't wrap my arms around. But what, you, what, what you're saying is so important. And back to what we're talking about here, it's not about the, who the president is. The entire medical system is messed up and it needs to be – we need a system that will protect uh, freedom or uh, free-thinking doctors. Um, uh, you know, what I want to see here is states to come up with – um, alternative licensing and board certification to recognize that, to break that monopoly of the cartel. It is so important. Man, we, we could go on forever. There's so much more I want to pick your brain on of the vaccines, but um, we wish you luck in, in what's going on in your legal battle. Um, you'll hopefully be exonerated and you know keep us updated on your work. Thanks very much. Take care. All right, folks. So I knew that was a bad idea to do two shows in one, one heavy topic with another. She should have gotten her own, but you know what? We're going to be off for Labor Day, stupidly. Labor Day is a stupid holiday, so you're not going to hear from me until Tuesday, and I've been a little bit sparse lately because of the vacation. So here you got two for the price of one, but they all tie in together, the first part of today and the second part, okay? In that what we're facing is so much bigger than who's president and who can controls um, Congress or whatever it's we need to rebuild parallel systems this is life and death that's going on just the medical issue alone that we have medicine that's that's joseph mengala and the people that are heroic are all being charged or investigated and this is global it's global okay you know that's what it is you have these ngos come in like i didn't realize that she said her government's actually good on this but they are weak institutions, and the ones who really control everything um, go after them. So there, there's no way to escape their grasp. The strongest, most freedom-minded people are the people in red state America. If we can't get it done there, we can't get it done anywhere around the world. Let's focus on what matters. Um, let's, let's not just be rhetoric-oriented. Specifically, what is the problem? Where is it coming from? What are we going to do about it? That's what this is all about. Again, you can follow me at C19TruthBombs on uh, Telegram. Make sure to get the Rise of the Fourth Reich. 
um, trialsandexecution.com. You can email me, danielherwitz at startmail.com. Hope you guys have a long holiday weekend with your family. We'll be back same time, same place on Tuesday. Till then, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.